0: Today's episode takes us back to the year of 2002, and it's just the very beginning of 2002. I don't know if you guys remember anything that you were doing in that year. I certainly don't, but I definitely know that the world was, um, you know, the United States specifically was in a weird place. But the day started as uh, the same as any other. And this is in the small town of Oregon City, Oregon. And I'll say right out of the gate, it seems weird to have a place named after your state be the smallest town or a small town, right? Like Oregon City, Oregon, small town, wouldn't expect it. But in the Newell Creek Village Apartments, Ashley Pond was running late for school. At around 8.15 in the morning, she said goodbye to her mother and headed out the door for a bus stop only a few minutes away at the top of the hill. Ashley was a bright, bubbly 12-year-old girl. She was popular and well-liked by other students, and she enjoyed swimming and dancing. Knowing that she usually participated in dance practice after school, Ashley's mother, Lori, didn't expect her home until shortly after 6 p.m. But Ashley didn't arrive. And then the school calls revealing that Ashley had been marked absent, which means she never even made it to school. In fact... No one seemed to know where the young girl had gone. With none of her clothing or belongings missing, Ashley's mother thought the odds of her daughter running away were slim. The authorities agreed, and they quickly began an investigation. So as you see, today's episode is about a young girl and bad things, and it just... It resonates with me for the fact that I grew up in an era, an area and an era where you were by yourself a lot. You did walk home from school. You did walk to school. You got yourself up and around for school. Right. There was a lot of times in a lot of households where you didn't see mom or dad until dinner time. Right. Five, six o'clock. Now you see mom and dad. Not only did I get myself up for school. I came home from school, and no one's here. I had to unlock the door and get in all by myself, make my own snack or whatever. And then two or three hours go by, mom's there. So I get this situation where it's like... You know, if somebody really wanted to take me or take anybody in my neighborhood, they probably could have. If they thought that that was an option. Because essentially, that's what this is. It's a a kidnapping of a young girl who for, you know, for at least a small amount of time, everybody thought was at school. And that's one of the worst parts is there's this time lapse that's gone. There's these hours that are missing. And if you can't fill in those gaps, you can't really say what happened. You might be able to, but it's certainly going to be more difficult. So the FBI actually comes on board. They get involved, but unfortunately it doesn't have any new results. But suspicion did quickly fall upon Ashley's biological father, who had been convicted of sexually abusing her during visits to his home. But he wasn't the only suspect. According to the investigators, there were some 90 registered sex offenders within one mile of the Ponds apartment complex. Television crews interviewed classmates, neighbors, and others in the area. Among those who appeared on camera was 13-year-old Miranda Gaddis, she was a close friend of Ashley's. But little seemed to be happening with the investigation until two months later, the town of Oregon City was once again shaken to its core. On the afternoon of March 8, 2002, the police received a call that must have seemed like deja vu. Miranda Gaddis, weeks after giving an interview about the disappearance of her friend, had also failed to show up for school. And the similarities with Gaddis and Pond didn't end there. Miranda actually looked a little bit like her friend and they walked up the same hill to the same bus stop each morning. Originally suspecting a stranger, the striking similar circumstances and absence of any sign of struggle led authorities to consider whether the culprit lay closer to home. The story soon exploded, garnering national headlines and generating frenzied speculation about a serial killer operating in a small Portland suburb. And tips continued to pour in, and a suspect list began to take shape. But the lack of hard evidence made it difficult for the investigation to progress. So, of course, that is odd. That is so strange. But... It is it, what makes it even more odd to me is the fact that these two girls, I mean after the first girl is essentially what officers or investigators could assume taken from her bus stop, why wouldn't they have somebody paying attention to that bus area? Why would any parents be letting their kids, especially their young young daughters go out there by themselves? It doesn't make any sense. That doesn't add up. Because if that's the initial theory, there should have been somebody there, whether it's an off-duty officer, one of the parents, somebody. But instead, they're just like, no, nah, it's cool, you, you should be fine, right? But it makes it even more terrifying knowing that this young girl had just been on TV talking about her friend, her missing friend, and then she falls victim. What, what the hell is going on? I mean, so many questions. But it's obviously, to me, it's somebody that isn't new to this To leave no clues where the FBI can, you know, assist in any way? That's somebody who's been doing this or somebody who's certainly not working alone. So one name continued to linger on the outside of this case, repeatedly popping up amid private investigations. Ward? Weaver. Weaver had a daughter, Mallory, who was friends with both Miranda and Ashley. The girls often had sleepovers and extended stays at the Weaver home. A teacher claimed to have once seen Weaver passionately kissing Ashley. A family member asserted that the young girl had spent nights sleeping in the older man's bed. Most damning of all, Ashley herself had accused Weaver of raping her months before her disappearance. Tipped off about the bushy-haired man at the top of the hill, a local TV reporter tracked Weaver down and requested to speak with him in his home. So, of course, seeing a picture of this guy, that's the last type of person, physically, that you would want around a bus stop, okay? For any reason. Early morning shit. That's just, that's so weird. Why is he here? What the hell does he want? You know, And then to think that these girls were actually spending time in his home, around him and, and his family, and he essentially put himself in this position to take advantage of these girls. So maybe if he did show up at the bus stop while they were there, he might have just said, hey, you guys just want to ride to school? And they never made it rather than fighting and saying somebody just straight took them, they might have actually got into his vehicle willingly because they knew him. Now to me, I feel like many times we do cases and the person who has committed the crime or the murder is someone close to the victim. And I think most investigators and homicide people will say the same thing. Look closer. You know, don't don't throw out a a wide net, if you will. And that's scarier, right? That's scarier to essentially put your trust in somebody, think that they're a valued human and they care about you, at least to a certain extent. I mean, to be offered a ride to school thinking, oh man, this is cool. I get to go to school a little bit earlier, I get there before, whatever it may be, there is good things to it, otherwise why get in the car only to never see your family and just go through a horrible, it's fucked up. Plain and simple. But I think about it like many of us could have had that experience, where it's like, oh yeah, we get in a car with somebody who is a friend of the family, you know, they might not be a relative, only to find out that they had nefarious ideas in their head. Like what, I mean, it's unfair, Now, during a bizarre and wide-ranging interview at his home, he professed his innocence. He said, I didn't have anything to do with it. He actually gave the reporter a tour of his house. However, he admitted he believed he was on the FBI's top suspect list. Authorities had investigated several times and apparently found no substantial evidence to further the case. Still, the man at the top of the hill kept popping up to the investigation. As reporters and private investigators dug further, another stunning realization came to light. The name Ward Weaver popped up in another place as well, on California's death row. Ward Weaver III was born in 1963 to Trish and Ward Weaver Jr. After his father abandoned the family in 1967, Weaver III moved to Oregon with his mother and her abusive alcoholic second husband. He showed a tendency toward violence from an early age, allegedly beating his half-brother as a child and sexually abusing his sister by the age of 12. In 1981, he escaped charges for allegedly raping and abusing another family member by fleeing to join the U.S. Navy Reserve. Now, again, this is a guy, bushy hair, up to no good, but can you say that this wasn't an outside influence, something inside the house, might have pushed him this way, made him do these things. I'm not giving him an excuse by any means. I'm simply looking at it logically like, hey, some of the things that make a person who they are come from very, very close. I mean, in most cases, you are a product of your environment. And maybe his father is not the good guy. He's a bad guy. And his son is now a bad guy as well. Uh, It's possible. Now, the young Weaver was dishonorably discharged from the Navy and later sentenced to three years in prison after violently attacking a friend's daughter, or er, daughters, striking one with a block of concrete in 1986. Now, the young Weaver had violent impulses that were surfaced once again in 1995 when he beat his girlfriend with a cast-iron skillet. He may have been abandoned when he was just four years old, but his history of violence represented Weaver III unknowingly following in his uh, his father's bloody footsteps. So maybe he didn't know that his dad was a bad guy, but he just did bad things, and turns out that's where the kid got it from. On the evening of February 5th, 1981. Shh. On February 5th of 1981, a passing motorist discovered a horrific scene along Highway 58 near Tehachapi, uh, California. A young man named Robert Redf- uh, Radford was lying along the side of the road with blood flowing from his head and pooling around his body. It was apparent he, he had been savagely beaten. Paramedics rushed quickly to the scene, but were unable to save his life. Checking the man's identity, police discovered his car had been abandoned on the highway nearby. Inside was identification belonging, belonging to 23-year-old Barbara Lavoie. Since the young woman was nowhere to be seen, police immediately launched a search. Unknown to them, It was already too late. The disappearance went unsolved for nearly two years before authorities received a break. A prisoner in San Quentin came forward to reveal that another inmate had given him a detailed account of the night the young couple disappeared. This inmate claimed that he was working as a long-haul trucker when he passed Radford and Lavoie standing beside their broken-down car. He then offers them a ride, and they accept. Several miles down the road he stopped and asked Radford for assistance with the load on his truck. That's when he violently attacked the young man with a metal pipe and left him for dead on the side of the road. He then kidnapped Barbara at Knife Point and drove along his usual truck route, stopping occasionally to rape and threaten the terrified woman. At one point, Lavoie bit her captive as he attempted to place a gag in her mouth. He then flew into a rage and strangled her on the spot. He ultimately went on to bury Barbara in a deep grave in his backyard, where he also built a platform on top of it for his wife to stand while she hung laundry. The man in the story, according to the prisoner, was Ward Weaver Jr. So yeah, Ward Weaver III, you know, the young Weaver, could have been abandoned and, and essentially found a better life because he wasn't around his father or this family in particular because it's obvious that his dad was a bad guy, doing bad things. So maybe it wasn't his environment that made Ward Weaver III a violent, temperamental dude. It was his bloodline. A search of the Weaver property revealed that the tale was indeed true. Barbara's body was found exactly where the authorities had been told to look. The elder Weaver, who was already in jail for kidnapping and raping another teenage girl and ordering a murder of her boyfriend, promptly confessed. After testifying that he was led to commit his grisly crime by a voice in his head, Weaver Jr. was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Two decades later, another confession once again connected the Weaver name to a rape and murder. It began with a call from Francis Weaver, the 19-year-old son of Ward Weaver III. He alleged that his father had raped his girlfriend and that he'd confessed to killing the young girls who'd gone missing near his home. A thorough search of the youngest weaver's property confirmed the tragic truth. Miranda Gaddis' body was found in a box inside a small shed. The following day, Ashley Pond's mummified remains were found buried beneath a concrete slab near the home. So a generation of murderers. Generational murderers. It's such a... I I feel like this has got to be rare. I feel like... We all know about many different serial killers that have had or killers in general that have children and those children didn't go to commit murder. So there is no excuse, there is no blaming. I think overall they both had it in them to do it in the first place. It's so it's so gross though to think like, oh yeah, me and dad. Me and dad here in prison. Isn't that isn't that funny? No, you fucking sick. Pig of a human? Like, get the fuck out. What? No one knows precisely what took place that led these two friends to shared fates. But it's believed Weaver abducted and murdered Ashley because he feared he would be arrested for raping her. He then lured Gaddis to his home two months later by claiming that Ashley was there and needed help. After killing her, he stored her body in a chest freezer. Weaver III eventually pled guilty to the murders and was sentenced to life in prison, though he never revealed the details of his action. Oddly enough, but not unbelievably, the Weaver family story doesn't end here. Recent investigations into Ward Weaver Jr. reveal that the logs of his trucking put him in the vicinity of up to 26 known murders across the state of California many in law enforcement now believe the extent of the Weaver patriarch's murderous activities may go well beyond what's currently known. In 2016, Francis Weaver, whose call led to the discovery of Ashley and Miranda's bodies, followed in the family footsteps when he was convicted of murder in connection with a botched drug deal. Though separated by time and distance, three generations of Weaver family are forever bound by the tragic, senseless violence that defines their lives. So even even the one son, who seemed to might be, I don't know, okay, ends up killing. The one that essentially, or the one that did, help reveal what actually happened to these young ladies. But he ended up being the same. Maybe he thought that by... Letting the world know what his family did, he could somehow avoid it. But there it is the cold, dead eyes of every single one of these weavers. But who knows? Maybe again, maybe when you think about it, Francis was probably looking for dad's a- approval or something. I don't know. There's got to be something there for this to take place. But either way, thank you all so much for tuning in. It has been my pleasure doing this podcast as long as we've been doing it. Showing your support the way that you have. It's phenomenal. But of course, if you want to do more, patreon.com slash podculture. Otherwise, we'll be back with some more Murder Avenue. Good night. (coughs) Oh, <coughs> Well, if nothing comes up, we can get ship days all had a crazy party or two we also believe we might have been the best part about those parties and maybe we have been invited to get togethers and done some crazy things it might be so insane you've never shared you might not ever share and you may not even party anymore so tune in each episode as we relive the party days with some of our favorite people every episode will consist of a round of questions changing every episode helping to introduce us to the possibility of the guests being an actual partier so click that play button and pop a cold one as do you party finds out who is a true party animal because we all know you miss sharing that six person beer bong with those strangers at dan's house find us on all major podcast platforms and follow us on instagram at do you party pod stay festy my friends